Hey, everybody. I'm Vicki. I'm Lynn. And I'm Bree. And we are telling on ourselves. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in this week for another episode. And we're excited to have you here. We got a really awesome topic for this week, uh, which we think you guys will like and relate to. And to start us off, we have Lynn, a golden first thought wrong ticket winner. (laughs) (laughs) I got a golden first thought wrong. We're going to start with golden first thought wrongs and end with golden nuggets now. See, that's why I didn't plan it and then it just came out. You and made to my be. stomach go down to my toes. I'm like, I don't know a golden nugget yet, Bree. We haven't even started. Yeah, she's a word person. We have to be very conscious of our words. <laughs> okay, I take that back. I just need a first thought wrong. It doesn't have to be a golden Thank one. You. Can I tell you all real quick, though? I had like this really cool breakthrough in my meditation practice this week. Some um at work. This is not a first thought wrong. This is just cool. And you made me think of it because my body reacted. Um, So I was at work one day and I was listening to Shauna Shapiro again, just because I love to listen to her. And for whatever reason that day, I'm like, I just need to hear her voice. So I was listening to her and she said something about um, when we react and Brie, this goes back to when you said, how do you, how do you not react? Well, we do react. We're human. You only stop reacting when your brain is dead. So that's a good thing. And she said something about, you know, um, are you feeling in your stomach? And then I'm like, wait a minute. In my meditation practice, they always say, check in with your body. What is your body doing? And I had this like click neon sign. Oh, so sometimes my body, because of our fight or flight mode, will react before my brain even knows what to do. So for me, it's always like almost this visceral salvation in my jaw that happens when I have that initial panic of, it's good or bad, even before my brain realizes it. And I'm like, that means paying attention to your body and that mindfulness before you things fly out of your mouth. And it was just like, Absolutely. And as she said that, she literally, you know, used her hands to show the things <laughs> flying out of like vomiting thoughts, which is what I'm really good at. <laughs> Yes. Well, <laughs> okay, I'll do first thought wrong then. Giddy up. <laughs> All right. So of course it's work related because you know I get I get to go to work. And you know who thought that'd be a privilege? Who thought that that would be like a big deal to be able to brag? I get to go to work and I'm in a safe place. So um, last week the boys that, you know, the guys that I work with that are in the mid twenties that I call the boys, they uh, agreed to go to GFS Gordon food service for me one day. So I wrote a list and um, kind of looking at the two months ahead. Cause I just done the menu for the next two months and uh, any big bulk items I like to get there. Cause it's easier than a grocery store, of course. So they got back and we're unloading everything. And there's two big bags of cheese tortellini and it's cheese ravioli. And I told the one guy, I said, well, before I told him, I saw it and I was like, God damn it, you know, and took it and stomped over the freezer and threw it in there because it wasn't right because I needed ravioli and he got tortellini. So when he came back in, I said, hey, man, um, I wrote on there ravioli, not tortellini. I said, I don't think it's a big deal, but my boss wants us to be very consistent. So on the menu, it says ravioli. So it has to be. And he goes, oh. And so he looked at it and he's like, huh. And I said, yeah, um, 
you know, I can see that it's confusing, but blah, blah, blah. But I wrote, and I was very adamant, I wrote cheese ravioli on his list. So he pulls out his list and it says cheese tortellini. Oh, snaps. <laughs> and I went, oh, I'm sorry. I was wrong. <laughs> and like, and I said, I swear if someone had held a gun to my head, I would have sworn that I wrote cheese ravioli, but I was wrong and I'm sorry. And we all, they laughed. And, you know, of course he, because they're boys, he wasn't offended at all, but we were just kind of laughing. He's like, I really, Lynn, I was paying, you know, and bless his heart. He's like, I was paying so close attention to make sure I got everything right. And he comes in, I'm like, you didn't even, you couldn't even get ravioli. And it was me. It was all. And you like had a temper tantrum throwing it in the freezer. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, no, Lynn, you couldn't get the ravioli, not him. So I have a question. Yeah. Has the menu already been made and sent out? Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, done. okay. That's it's why. Yeah. See, there's a reason you were a little bit particular. So what so what was your solution? Like what is the problem solving situation? Well, that's gonna sit in my freezer for two months, but that's okay because it, it'll be fine. And then we'll have to go back and get the big bags of cheese around the other. Well, but and that's why they have freezers created just for you. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's got a shelf life of six months, so we're all good. Beautiful. So you, can you make it next week or is it like the menus out for the month kind of thing? I've got menus now through the end of March. Well, maybe you shouldn't be so darn on top of it sometimes. And leave yourself a little wiggle room for mistakes when the boys bring back the tortellini and not the raviolis. Or I feed the staff one day. I don't know. I'll figure it out. Well, and it's like the rigidity um, in it. And it reminds me of at work sometimes or in life, how that trickle down effect happens. So your boss wants it to be very on tip top. And, um, you know, it's hard for me sometimes when you tell me these stories, because I'm like, what's the big deal? Tartellini ravioli, they both have cheese in them. They're both pot wrapped in pasta. What's the big deal? They're both delicious. It's going to be fine. Have a little flexibility, you know, because that's my go-to, but that is being just as judgmental as the whole idea of it has to be perfect. So both of those things are room for opportunity for noticing where we're acting in a certain way, which is like, I automatically went, what is the big deal in my brain? So that's my first thought wrong. BFD. And you know, well, and this is why we are rigid about this um, because our our clientele, the senior citizens, they're very um, literal. And when they sign up for it, it's like we're uh, signing a contract. They have a contract for the certain thing that they agreed to purchase. Yeah, so it's the trickle down effect. It's the client to the boss to the Lynn. Exactly. And and then Lynn to the boys. Yeah, (laughs) poor boys. (laughs) Well, and then I, I just think like, how can you turn it into something funny? And like, if you were to just like, if someone ever called you, you know, you make the damn tortellinis. And if someone was like, Hey, these are tortellinis. You just, huh? Huh? Really? I guess they are. Would you look at that? Huh? Weird. It's still a cheese filled (laughs) pasta. You had no idea. Like, like you're kind of confused as well. Like, You're, you're confused just right along with them. Well, huh? How did, what? I'll be damned. <laughs> Anyways, 
Um, thank you, Lynn. Amazing first thought wrong. Um, <laughs> thank God nobody was really holding a gun to your head right now because <laughs> you weren't so sure. Well, you were sure, but it was not the raviolis. So it was, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, think about how many times that actually happens to us and everybody else around us. I mean, that perception that we have of what we did um, and it was totally not the truth. Man, I, I sometimes say that when I get in maybe like an argument with Dave and we disagree on how we perceive something to happen. I go, is that the hill you want to die on? Is that the hill you want to die on? I love that saying. I love that saying so much. And I always yeah. think about it. Cause like we will get to like, we swear it happened one way or the other. Right. So sometimes that's my way of getting us back to, do we really care? Like it's, is it really something that's going to affect our lives in a big, like Lynn yours, maybe cause it's your career, but in general, I'm like, is that the hill? <laughs> well, I always used to say when I was in that mode, cause I, oh my gosh, I would argue something till the, till the. I would be on the hill fighting. Um, I would say, I know for a fact that I did not do that. And that tone and with that emphaticness, I know for a fact what I said. (laughs) My favorite is when my brother used to say, I'll bet you $10 I said that. And I'm like, how are you going to prove that now after the fact? (laughs) There was no other witnesses. What do you want? You you just want me to give you $10? How are you going to prove that? (laughs) How are you going to prove it? It's funny because I was so completely convinced that I did not make a mistake. So it was a really good, it was a real good lesson in humility there because I'm like, I'm so meticulous about things. I'm like, there's no way I made that mistake. There's just no way, no way in hell. And then I look at my writing, handwriting on the list. I'm like, huh, (laughs) look at, would you look at that? Huh. I'll be damned. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. All right. Well, we have an awesome topic today. Um, As a lot of people know, maybe January is kind of turned into this uh, walk in dry places, AKA dry January, uh, a movement where, you know, some people make resolutions for the new years. And part of that is giving up drinking, um, you know, for a a period of time, usually just January, you know, dry January. So we're going to just explore that today. Like dry January, the first step, when do you know when you need to take it from just a dry January into a first step? Daily (laughs) dry. Like completely dry, like, you know, and just exploring that. So it's really interesting. So I was, uh, of course, sourcing the, um, not just the definition, obviously, it's it's refraining from drinking alcohol in January, but it actually started in the United Kingdom, France, and Switzerland, and it's because their culture had become so um, based, focused on the pub culture and pub life that they were, they noticed a big increase in alcoholism. So I'm at, I, my question, of course, first was, is it an increase or it's just that they're tracking it better? My guess would be that it's tracking it better, not that there's an increase, but what they wanted to do to promote better health, better habits was take a month off from this and see how it affects your life. And I think that's real curious for people that maybe are just starting to wonder, you know, am I using this as a crutch, whatever, what happens if I take a month off? Do you think about it every day? Do you miss it? Is it hard for you? Like, do you feel like you're crawling out of your skin having to give it up for 30 days? 
I mean, I've heard a lot of stories. Um, actually, one of our good friends, Andy, I remember, you know, we've had him on here as a guest before. Part of his story is he would he was able to give up. Um, or no, I'm sorry, maybe it wasn't Andy. I think it was his sponsor, Mike, who gave up uh, for Lent. And so that kept him sick for a little while is because he was actually able to give up drinking for Lent, not that he didn't suffer through it every single day of it, but he had, that was enough to convince him that maybe he didn't have a problem if he could give it up for Lent. Right. And I mean, as a mom, when I was pregnant, I was able to give it up. And I always think about that. I had a sister-in-law that was pregnant at the same time and she was this happy, joyous, glowing pregnant woman like they talk about. And I was miserable AF, miserable, alcohol-free and as fuck. I hated being pregnant. I wanted to rush through being pregnant. And one of the things that I find in my alcoholism, and I think it was a... um one of my defense mechanisms in life is thinking about the future and I don't want to be where I am. I just want to get out of this and be in bed or I just want to be out of this and get to the party or I just don't want to be where I'm at. You know, I mean, that that is a, a tendency that I had in general. But when you added uh, the anticipation of having a child and then zero drugs and alcohol or cigarettes, holy cow. I was a miserable, miserable anxiety human. The roof. Yeah, anxiety, I'm sure. Um, well, there's you know, something was, we... Oh, go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say, there's something that we say in, and that's in our text, the big book, that ca- calls it irritable, restless, discontent. And um, I mean, that is how, yeah, 100 million times over. I, uh, when I got to the last couple of years of my drinking career, there's no way I could have gone a month. I would have gone insane just because of all the restless, irritable discontent. Not, I would, I would, I probably would have gotten fired from my job just for being such a miserable fuck, basically. (laughs) Horrible to everybody else. I mean, can't imagine it, but I do have a friend that I've known for years, probably since college. And she's, her uh, drinking kind of peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. And it would amaze me like she would, and we never had an official conversation. So this is speculation on my part and observation, but she, I guess would get to a point where she'd start to get a little worried and she would take like six months off. But then when she went back, it's like a relapse because when she went back, it was twice as much. And that, but I'm like, God, there is no way when I was drinking actively, there is no way I could have taken a month off period. So I, I think for me, this brings up in my mind right now, the prog- progressive part of the disease of alcoholism. And what they say is it progresses, right? So um, though we may for a time be able to go, some people do it for years. There's a story in the big book about a gentleman that went for his whole career. He noticed at the beginning of his career that his drinking was affecting his work and he wanted to be uber successful. And so he was, he was uber successful. He retired within six months. His life was decimated, decimated because what happens is, you know, I think it's a, it's a good exercise to figure out if you are, if you do have a problem, right? Because um, if you really are true to your yourself on the inside and you really, um, I mean, the, the, the questions that we ask, right, are 
um, when you start drinking, can you, do you have a hard time stopping? Right. And so that's why binge drinkers, I think, have such a hard time too. You know, people that binge, they don't know if they're alcoholic or not because they think the myth is that you have to drink every day to be an alcoholic. But it's how you use alcohol once it's in your body, right? And it, and, and it progresses. So my point being that as we, um, you can see, like I can see early in my drinking career, how if I would have arrested that that habit then that I I probably, you know, wouldn't have gotten to where I got, right? I probably wouldn't have had multiple suicide attempts. I probably wouldn't have had all this, you know, divorce, this this negativity, this this whatever I had. But I can see that in hindsight, but then I didn't think, I just thought I had a, a, you know, a party, an extra party night and I had an extra shitty day the next day. And I'm not talking about the hangover effects. For me, it was that total depression because after a really bad night of humiliating behavior and all that yuck that can come with um, drinking, um, <laughs> man, oh man, it was, it, it is very apparent when you go back and you look at your, your drinking history. For me, it was. Well, and I think that would be why some people, you know, would consider having a dry January. They're probably feeling some of that, or they're maybe feeling f- the physical effects of it. Um, or maybe they are starting to get worried like, oh, I drank every day in December, whether it was a glass to take the edge off or whether I went to town because my family didn't get together this year for Christmas and it was just me and two bottles of wine. Um, I think the reason you want to, I mean, you have to wonder if you're, if you're having to make a, a commitment to cut out alcohol for any period of time in your life, I guess you kind of have to wonder like, why are you, why are you doing that? You know, what's going on? I, that would lead to a good question of, why do you need to make a commitment for it? Can't you just chill out? You know, do you need to turn it into a January challenge or do you need to do it as a Lent thing? Just cut it out, just stop. And I remember, like you said, Vicki, the questions that we asked to qualify ourselves, you know, and as a binge drinker, it was hard, I think, to wrap my mind around that you know, you know, when you start drinking, can, is there an off switch, like in the middle of your drinking, can you have one and just turn it off? And can you turn it off without having that voice in the back of your head saying like, well, this is really no fun. And now I'm pissed off because I can't have another. And, you know, maybe if I leave this party and I just go home, I can, you know, have a couple more, you know, I don't want to have to limit myself right now. And then two, can you not like when asked to stop, or if you're faced with severe consequences, like your wife wants to leave you or your husband wants to leave you or the D, you know, DCF is coming to get your kids or you're about to lose your job. When you have these consequences facing you, are you able to stop altogether? Like the, you know, can you stop while you're drinking and just, can you stop and put it down and not pick it back up? If you, if your life requires it without destroying your life. So in the last few years, <clears throat> I have read a few articles about um, people with journal during dry January. And I was always curious because, as, like you said, Brie, if I'm having to ask myself, <laughs> then it seems 
fairly obvious, but people do it for different reasons. And that's what I always try to remind myself, you know, my perspective and my chair, my view here from my chair is a whole lot different than healthy drinkers, normal drinkers, whatever we want to, however we want to classify those. And the journaling that I read, um, magazine articles and online and stuff, people were amazed at how much more time they had in their lives. This is pre-pandemic, of course. So let's keep this in mind too, when you actually could go out and do things. Um, but they were amazed at how much more time they had, uh, obviously more money, um, like <laughs> yeah, skin felt better. Their diet was better. They were more motivated to, to exercise. It's like all these things that we can talk ourselves out of, even though we know it's probably good for us. If you have a glass of wine, then suddenly your brain can go, you don't need to get up in the morning at six and do that Pilates class. We're having fun. And even if it is just one glass of wine, that's all it takes to lower those inhibitions. And for that other part of your brain, that's not always the great motivator, keep us on track, keep us, you know, working towards growth and happy and all these other things, it gets quite that voice gets quieted as well. So it's really it was interesting to read the people's uh, entries of how much they did learn about how it does affect their lives, how they can pick always not the most healthy or productive or whatever uh, lane to drive down when they were under the influence of alcohol. Yeah, you're a hundred percent right. Actually, you, you know, like hearing you say that. The difference, I guess, would be the like, you know, the allergy of the alcoholic, you know, that craving and that physical need to like the physical need and craving that really pulls us in. And yeah, there are just a lot of people out there, I think, who maybe have the me mental dependency just because the, it's either, you know, fun or it takes the edge off or yeah, with COVID this year, it's kind of just allows you more time to be drinking and maybe not being as productive in other parts of your life. So, I mean, yeah, there's definitely just well, people who, yeah, want to give it up like they give up sugar, you know? Well, yeah. right. And, and I think that the exercise is uh, a really good one. And, and I think the, the idea of looking inside yourself and, and for me, so um, one of the things about this topic of dry places for me, that's important. That was important in my early recovery. That actually is still important in my recovery. If I'm completely honest, is I try not to be around a lot of alcohol. And I do that because I know that my disease is, as we say in our text, cunning, baffling, and powerful. And I don't know when. So, so, so we talk about staying away from the first drink. And what that means is, is if we don't pick up that first drink, we won't trigger the allergy that Brie was talking about. Because what happens inside my body as an alcoholic, when I trigger the allergy, I don't get woozy and say, Ooh, I'm feeling good. I want to stop. What happens to me is I'm like, Ooh, give me more. And I can physically intake more alcohol than someone who's not alcoholic and still be functioning. It is, it is, it is physiologically what happens. And what's interesting is we have a guest coming up that has a lot of information about the brain. And she was telling me in an interview I did with her, the epidemic of what's going on since the pandemic, the epidemic since the pandemic of um, drugs and alcohol abuse. And, um, 
and how it's affecting people. And, and it reminds me of when we saw Dr. T's and how he talks about how you could either be alcoholic, like you, you you know, that automatically happens, or you can, you can change your brain structure because of so much abuse of alcohol that you become, become one, which is something that happens to a lot of women later in life, because the fact of the matter is women are physically more affected. Um, well, I don't know how, to, what the actual fact is, but what I've heard in articles and I, you know, I'm speaking off my out of my ass right now, but there is, we metabolize less there. It usually comes on a lot stronger in women is what I've heard. And now I, I, please fact check that for me because I don't know the facts Um, clearly, but I've heard it and it's impacted me. And, and so my whole point being, as I talked about eight things at once, I want to talk about dry staying out of places that have drinking around me. And, and what I think in this whole dry January experience, something that you can look at, if this is something that you're doing and you're not sure, I think something that you can look at is when you, do you go, do you still hang out with people that drink when they're drinking? Do you go to the party? Do you go to the bar? And how do you feel there? Are you irritated? Are you resenting them? Do you want to drink? Are you, are you forcing yourself not to do something you want to do? Like those are questions. That's what comes up for me. I remember when I was pregnant, we're going back to pregnant. I was pregnant. It was New Year's Eve. I stayed out of the bar. My, my husband was a bartender. I stayed out of the bar, but I went because it was New Year's Eve and I wanted to give him a kiss and I wanted to see my friends. And I was standing in the corner of that bar and I about wanted to just go ballistic on everybody. I, I could not, I mean, the second 1201, I left. And, um, and that's what happens to me in my alcoholism. When I can't drink and I'm watching other people drink, it is absolutely, totally 100% horrible, horrible, beyond horrible. I don't even have a word to describe it as torture. It is pure torture. And when I was going to my meetings, the first time I tried to get sober, this man said to me, Vicki, if you're here, I can't tell you if you're an alcoholic, which is why I love Alcoholics Anonymous so much. Nobody tells me I'm an alcoholic. Nobody, nobody proclaims me to be an alcoholic. I have to. But he said, I can't tell you if you're an alcoholic, Vicki. But what I can tell you is if you're here, there's probably a reason. And that stuck with me for many, 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 many years until I did come back into the rooms. Uh, I remember Vicki, and now it'll be a year and a half ago, a friend of mine has an annual Halloween party, and I ask you to go because they are so much fun. And um, it was great having my sober buddy with me. So when it, you know, because we were there for the first, probably third, I don't even know, first third or half. And when people started getting rowdier and the people were repeating them, so, you know, when all the sloppy starts happening, I was ready to jet. And it's real interesting. I have found at, since being sober, um, I'm okay in situations like a restaurant where people are having a glass of wine, my friends, and I'm at the table, that's fine. I'm not okay in those rowdy situations like a big party or even a bar when you've got obnoxious people. And it's just, I don't have patience anymore. Um, and the, not only do I not have patience, I don't feel the urge to be patient because 
I'm not in that world anymore. So it's like I, I have zero tolerance for it. And that sounds judgy, but I'm I'm making the decision to be there. And I also make the decision to leave when it is annoying. So it's not really judgmental. Everybody can do, they can, as Brie always says, you can fly your freak flag. I just don't want to be a part of it because it is really annoying to me being sober. So it's, I have different situations, which I'm really okay being in when there's alcohol present, but I know the places I am not okay in now, and I don't subject myself to that. Agreed, Lynn. That was like a learning experience for me over the last three years. You know, I wanted to be able to reintroduce going to events and going places that I was so used to going to before I got sober. I mean, there was a big period of my, you know, my sobriety because I couldn't drive. I really didn't go anywhere. So I had like these, I like to call them like the bumper lanes, uh, the bumpers, uh, you know, in the bowling alley, like I had some built-in bumpers in my sobriety. So, um, you know, but once those bumpers came down, then I started like, you know, experimenting with like, okay, I can go to this party and I can, oh, these people are drinking here and oh, I can go to this party. And, and then eventually, you, you know, I remember being out with my brother and my sister-in-law, bef- like when he was in town for Thanksgiving to, you know, the, Thanksgiving before I relapsed, being at Howl at the Moon, him drinking an enormous Mai Tai, everybody drinking, having a good time and feeling like, man, I feel like bummed out a little bit that I can't like drink and have a good time. And that's like where it started, like started feeling sorry for myself, started romanticizing the, and my alcoholism was like, yeah, this is comfortable. Like I'm getting her, like if I could imagine my alcoholism speaking, it would be saying, oh yeah, I'm getting her warm to the idea of all the fun she's missing and, you know, what it used to be like. And, um, well, and, and that whole month following was just like, oh, just I had Christmas putting yourselves parties. in yeah. that situation. Yeah. Well, remember the time you were smelling what's her name's wine? Um, yeah. I remember I had a friend of her, we were watching bachelor bachelorette and she like went to the bathroom and I was like smelling her and it was like shitty wine too. <laughs> I was like smelling her wine. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's is walk in dry places, you know, well, if you want to protect your sobriety. I think that's a, and Vicki, what you were saying about the women really quick, I'm sure it has something to do with hormones and changing hormones because we do see that women who come into the program much later in life where they were normal drinkers their whole life. And then, you know, not any major life events, like like nothing that would really catalyst it except for maybe something with hormones. Like, and I don't know that either. Like, don't quote me on that, but I think that would be a very interesting. We're ass talkers. Me and Brie are ass talkers. We're putting that out there for the scientists who are listening. They can do some research on the hormones and women and alcoholism. (laughs) Well, I was definitely a later in life problem drinker. And it didn't happen until I left a, you know, a tough relationship and needed, I I just, I didn't know how to cope. I had no tools to cope with my life. And I started drinking first to relieve anxiety and to be able to sleep. And before I knew it, I was completely dependent. So I think I am a good example of, because I was 41 when that happened. And it took me seven years to basically crash my life (laughs) into a big wall, you know, after I started. So um, it's really interesting that, and, and they've always said women do metabolize alcohol faster because there's a lot of different factors. It's the, the fat cells in our body that, you know, they uh, send it to the um, brain faster. There's a lot of different reasons. And there is a lot of studies showing women um, do kind of go off that cliff real fast. It's like we ramp up really quick and they just fall over the edge. And 
to me, that was a little bit comforting because, you know, there's so many things you're struggling with when you're trying to come to terms with where you are um, with it, with your drinking. And to know that I was, it's like everything with the program, to know I wasn't alone, that I wasn't a freak, that I wasn't, you know, I was so weird and strange and an anomaly. I wasn't, you know, there's lots of people that had suffered the same thing I had, just like Brie, you, you know, with binge drinking. Well, you could go a week without drinking, you know, but then when you did, that switch turned on. We're all different, but we're all the same. And, and that's the beauty of this fellowship that we do have with our program of recovery and sobriety. And I have a couple things on, on the dry thing, like on the dry places. I don't think it is necessary. And in our text, it says it isn't necessary. If we're spiritually fit, if we're connected, if we are feeling comfortable to go to places, I don't think it's wrong. I th- Some people can do it, no problem. I think that what you said, Lynn, is so important, is having that off switch and having that out. We protect ourselves and we learn tools in the program. So whenever I do go to a place where it's, you know, a party or alcohol is being served or whatever it is, I always have my car or Uber on Uber on speed dial, right? Um, because I, and I need to give myself that permission, my word permission, I need to give myself that permission to leave. And early in recovery, I had a real hard time because people pleasing, I felt like I had to be there, like I was going to let them down, like I would be a jerk, like blah, blah, you know, all the little excuses and stories I would tell myself. So having an out and leaving and my, my, um, my barometer usually is when the voices start getting really loud and you start hearing the same stories over and over again from the same person three times, um, then it's time for me to leave. Those are my, those are my like, okay, it's time for me to go. Bye-bye. This is fun. You, you, you know, I, I've heard your story about when you fell down the stairs three times <laughs> in three different rooms. So it's time for me to go. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Well, um, this kind of leads us into how we walked into the rooms of alcoholic and uh, alcoholics anonymous and the, the first step. And I, um, finally came to terms with that when I admitted that I was powerless over alcohol, my life had become unmanageable. Yeah. I want to read something out of this. Um, there's a book that we went through in one of our, our um, meeting groups that the four of us go to, and it's called A Woman's Way Through the 12 Steps. And um, it kind of talks about that powerless thing, because I think that word powerless is a trigger for some people. Uh, a trigger might not be the right word. It's something that's a stumbling block, a major stumbling block for a lot of us. And I want to read what what the author wrote about it, because I think it's pretty helpful. It's been pretty helpful for me in my recovery. And it says... The word powerless is a problem for many women. Many of us were taught to let something or someone else control our lives. It can be difficult to acknowledge we are powerless over our addictions because we already feel powerless in so many ways, in so many other areas of our lives. Admitting powerlessness may appear to be one more instance of our familiar one down position. It seems like too much to ask of us, yet... Only when we admit our powerlessness and lack of control over our addiction can we begin to find out where we truly have power in our lives. This is the first of many paradoxes we experience in recovery. For women, recovery is about empowerment, finding and using our true inner power. It may seem contradictory to claim our power when we've just admitted ourselves powerlessness but actually we are made more powerful by this admission. 
How can this be true? It's very simple. By admitting our powerlessness over our addiction, we are freeing ourselves to turn our attention to areas where we do have control. When we give up the struggle to control the things we can't control, we begin to discover our true source of power. Well, I love that. But, you know, as you're reading it, I think, man, it, it kind of goes back to how desperation, people always say the gift of desperation and how the, uh, the to the extent that you are desperate is also the extent to how you feel powerless and maybe your motivation to make a huge life change or to get into the program or, or to start thinking about, because Vicki, you and I have talked about this in the last couple of weeks here about um, when you kind of, when you have like a high bottom emotionally where like you were still having fun, but you have like, so with me, I was still having a lot of fun and like to party and be out with all my friends, but I was having lots of legal consequences. So I knew if I kept going on, I mean, mathematically, I'd have like 80 DUIs by the time I was 40. Like, you know, uh, so I had to take a look at that. Like there was clearly a problem, like, like my rap sheet was showing me that or whatever you want to call it. Um, but that sometimes also tricks my mind. My alcoholism wants me to think I'm not as powerless as I thought I was because of that binge drinking, because I didn't have the total emotional, like, you know, the, like drinking every day, stuck in a cycle where I was, you know, drinking every day. So then what were you doing every day? So when you weren't drinking, what were you doing? Oh, I was getting high, of course. Right. But I, but my, yeah. Right. And so, but to my mind, it was normal to get high every day. Right. And it was, it was cool to get high every day. Right. And it was the alternative to taking like Xanax. So I actually thought I was doing a really good thing because I wasn't, I was, it was nature's anti-anxiety medication and I wasn't taking a pharmaceutical. So I was really riding that. <laughs> well, it's the justifications we play with, right? It's the justifications oh, in our mind and the denial of, Am I able to stand in my own skin without any substance? Mind-altering substances. You know, am I able to do that? And and I'm not saying that that declares you an alcoholic or not, but for me, you know, I struggled. I, I, I got sober May 1st and I started smoke. Well, I already smoked every day, but I continued to smoke weed every single day. And for me, I had to take a look at, what was happening because it wasn't, um, it wasn't true, true. I wasn't truly able to be honest with people and and open myself up, which, which is part of the, so, which is part of the recovery that gave me freedom. Right. So, so what I think what she's talking about gave me empowerment. I was still under that thumb of that one hitter. I was still under that thumb of that, um, that, you know, bag that I had to go get from my dealer. I was still under that thumb, just like alcohol. I was under that thumb because the mental obsession for me was I needed something to be better. For me, it was I needed to be drunk or high to be for people to want to be around me when that was a complete delusion of people were like, you are a hot mess, Vic. (laughs) mess express you betcha dealing with anxiety you know i i didn't feel like i could 
slog my way through the mess of my life um, without something to, to, to quiet the voices. But luckily, um, I had the gift of desperation, Brie, and I had a big gift of desperation. And what I think um, when you were talking about the reading, Vicki, is it's the serenity prayer. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change. Once I was able to let go of, I am not in control of this disease that I have. There is nothing in my power alone that I can do. Once I let go of thinking I could beat it, because that was always my my thinking was like, you know, I'll, I'll be sober for a little bit and I'll feel pretty good and then I beat it so I can go back to drinking like a normal person. Once I let go of that, then the path, you know, my world opened up because I stopped letting go. And then I was empowered. Then I felt, you know, um, I felt capable of tackling the issues that made me drink in the first place. It's, it's a, it's a sticky wicket, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a mind. I mean, and, and this is where the mental obsession comes into play, right? That mental obsession of justifying of, um, I mean, I would think it was my best friend. I felt devastated. I felt devastated when I had to give up weed. I was like, this is the only thing that's always there for me. That always makes me feel better. It was, it was literally like my pink blankie I had growing up. I had a, when I was a baby, I had a pink blankie and I carried it around with me everywhere and it had like satin on it and I rubbed it on my face and I smelled it and it was just wherever I went, I had it. And that is what weed was for me, right? So to admit complete and utter powerlessness over those substances in my life was humiliating to me at first, but it was truly the most empowering thing I ever did in my life. Absolutely. Yesterday on Facebook, I think you and a couple other friends posted that she let go poem. And every time I read that, I weep. I just, I love it so much. Maybe we can put that on our show notes because it really, it, that completely typifies what my journey has been like. Just, I commend anybody who's given up drinking right now or just examining, right? like that first step of awareness or consciousness, it's hard. And I commend anybody who's trying to make their life better, whether it's giving it up for a day, giving it up for a month, just examining, you know, self-examination, seeing, seeing what role it plays, what hole it fills, what it distracts you from, how it makes you feel with it, without it. Like if you're going to give it up for a month, yeah, do some, do a little bit of self-questioning while you're in that sober place. Right. Don't try to be where you're not. Don't try to be February 1st, you know, um, experience it, feel the feelings. And that's, there's, there's one thing that um, one of our good, good friends who's been on the show always says is um, when we come into this program, there's a, the first word of the first step is we, and um, we can be your we you can reach out to us. There are meetings everywhere. There are all different types of meetings. There are all different people that have gotten through this debilitating disease that, that handcuffs us in our own mind, right? We don't, we don't need to be in, um, we're not in prison behind bars yet, but we are in prison of that 
you know, there's a there's a picture that you see around the rooms a lot, and it's this dude in a bottle, like just screaming in inside of a bottle, and and that's what it felt like. I I it controlled my every single day thought, whether I was drinking or not. I was thinking about, oh, I can't wait to get fucked up. And it was a really hard place to live. But with the we of the program and seeing other people truly getting through it and being actually happy people that laughed and smiled and were genuine and were true, it gave me hope. It gave me hope. I have a golden nugget. Ooh. If, if we're ready for it. I'm ready. Are you ready, Brie? Are you I'm ready, so Brie? Ready. Sweet, Brie. I kind of brought this full circle, and it's because of what you said just at the end, Brie. You know, at the beginning, I was talking about the big breakthrough I have with my meditation practice and mindfulness. And when you said, don't, don't squander the time, basically. Use this time for maybe a little bit of self-examination or self-awareness. We are not telling you what to do, nor are we preaching. But when you said that, Brie, it made me think about what I'm noticing with myself, you know, three and a half years down the road that I'm just now queuing into physical cues as where, as well as being mindful. So, you know, there's always an opportunity to learn a little bit more about ourselves, which I think is cool. And my second thing that I want to add is when um, Chelsea, we're on Zoom and Chelsea's in her uh, office setup and she got up to go somewhere in her chair. Can you stand up for a minute, Chelsea, and move away from your chair? Darth Vader or Martin the Martian have it decided. Go no no. <laughs> Martin the Martian or Darth Vader is what her chair pad looks like. And I was like so distracted by that for a very long time. That's all. Thank you. <laughs> I remember the first time the camera turned on and Chelsea wasn't sitting in her chair. It was like, you know, and I couldn't figure out what I was looking at. I was like, is it a helmet? Like, I didn't know. And then she sat down in it. I'm like, it's a chair, but it's like, we'll a have to take a picture chair. of the chair. It's chair quite the chair. chair. It is quite the chair. It's like, if you've got any neck or back problems or like arthritis in your pinky finger, like this chair is going to help you for sure. For sure. It's going to heal. Um, my golden nuggets, um, I don't know. I guess it was kind of all of it was, I don't know. I just like this topic and talking about when you know and crossing the line and b- getting in tune with powerlessness, whatever that means to you, right? Um, and that self-examination piece as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I don't have just one golden nugget, but it's a good, a good topic and I, again, I just commend anybody who's doing a dry January and taking a look at their relationship with alcohol. And, and my golden nugget is just the idea of instead of looking at it like I'm powerless, looking at it of what other power I can, I can source in my life that isn't hurting me physically, emotionally, spiritually, cutting me off from other human beings because that's what it did for me. And I do, uh, I honor and and um, wish everybody that is trying this on for size some clarity because really it, it's, it's one of the tenets of our program is to thine own self be true. So nobody can tell you anything. You and your heart 
And and some sometime you might be ready and sometime you might not be ready. And sometime you might realize you don't need to be ready. But it's all about what's going on in 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 our hearts to be true to ourselves and to and to um I don't know, for me it's like getting the courage to love myself and understand that I don't have to hurt myself to be okay. Here, here. Beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Well, reach um, out to us if you have any questions, please. Or yeah. if you if you have a perspective on dry January that differs from ours too, or you're having a different experience with it, I would love to know. Yes. Yeah. And I think this week we're going to post uh, pictures on Instagram and Facebook of our vision boards that we worked on a couple of weeks ago last week. I don't even know. Time has been like a weird thing for me. I, I can't keep weeks straight. And um, I don't know if it's been a week or three weeks since Christmas <laughs> or well, two months. Yeah, I know. It's been it's been it's been a wild ride. And I I think that's because you're in the day, Lynn. Um, you're not counting the time. You're in the day, so I think it's I think it's a good thing. Yeah. So we're gonna post our vision boards, and if you have any vision boards, throw them up there or talk about what you would like to see. And as always, we always would appreciate a review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts because it does help us in our uh, rankings when people are doing searches for a sober podcast or recovery podcast or an AF <laughs> podcast. It helps people to find us, which we certainly appreciate. And we always appreciate you guys. And um, we're just, we're glad you're here. We, we, what a gift we've been given. Thank you, everybody. And I will, of course, include the link to Patreon as well in the show notes. So if you'd like to support our show, uh, you know, your donations go towards the cost of our editing and, um, you know, what we have to pay to host our podcast on our podcast platform. So that is super appreciated as well. Be and kind you to yourself, people. Be kind yes. and um, drive out. Drive out. Thanks for listening to another episode of Telling on Ourselves. Please rate, review, share, subscribe, download our podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you want more telling on ourselves, please find us and follow us and like us on Instagram and Facebook at Telling on Ourselves. Tribe out.